0: Numbers chapter 13 this evening, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we come finally to this chapter and this episode in the history of the nation of Israel. If you'll just allow me uh, the freedom to give you a little bit of a uh, uh, kind of a brief introduction to these uh, next two chapters, I I sure would uh, appreciate it. In chapters 13 and 14, we have uh, an account of uh, one of the three greatest blunders, greatest failures in the history uh, of the Jewish people that are recorded in the Scriptures for us. Number one uh, uh, blunder was, of course, in failing as a nation, as a whole, in recognizing Jesus as their promised Messiah. Number two was their willful abandonment, really, into idolatry uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, until uh, the idolatry, the worship of creation, the worship of you know, false gods and all, uh, just almost erased the worship of Jehovah God, the one who was the only reason for their existence, the only reason for their prosperity and, and all, almost uh, completely uh, e- eclipsed him And the problem is, is that God's plan for the whole world was still attached to them. Uh, The Messiah, the Savior, Jesus, hadn't been born to the world yet. They were jeopardizing it with idolatry, and God allowed them to go into uh, Babylonian and Assyrian captivity in order to cure them of their idolatry. And then we come, the third great incident is is this one uh, right here, their failure to enter into the promised land, to enter into Canaan because of their disobedience to God, their rebellion against Him and their lack of faith it's very important for us to understand as Christians. And sometimes uh, it just takes a little while where we're uh, studying the Old Testament on Sunday nights or maybe, you know, in some church somewhere they're teaching it on Sunday morning. And I think that uh, because the Old Testament is being so overlooked today and even the New Testament is being increasingly overlooked, that people can sometimes, Christians can sometimes look at the Old Testament as, has nothing to say to me. Uh, they look at it as just kind of a, a dry technical history uh, of the children of, of Israel and that you know, there really isn't uh, anything that has to do with our lives. It's just this history lesson, the who, what, where, when, why, and how of, of the children of Israel. But the Bible declares that all of these events in the Old Testament were recorded for us as Christians also in order that we might learn spiritual lessons from them. And it's called typical history. History. In other words, there are things that happen to the children of Israel and in their relationship with God, sometimes great successes, sometimes great failures. This is a great failure. And it's a, it's a type, it is a picture of something that is supposed to teach us something, even under the New Covenant as uh, as Christians. And so we're to carry these lessons over into our own uh, lives. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter. Uh, 10, uh, the Lord declares... There. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers, uh, Paul writing here of the Jews, were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, speaking of the Red Sea, all were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, speaking of the manna, all drank of the same spiritual drink, the water that come from the rock. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these, and this is the incident that we're going to be looking at now. Now these, he said, uh, things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Speaking of the golden calf uh, incident. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. That's a future thing that we'll be studying. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by uh, serpents. Nor murmur as some of them also murmured and they were a murmuring people and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition on whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So when we read this, we think, Boy, oh boy, how could they do that? I'm glad I would never do something like that. (laughs) No, no, don't read the Bible that way either. So uh, in Romans chapter 15, verse 4 Paul wrote and said, "For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, and so there's something that God wants us to learn from all of these uh, great events that He records here, and uh, and important for us thus to know not only the New Testament but also the Old Testament. Someone's put it this way: speaking of the Old Testament, the New uh, New Testament, the New is in the Old contained, and the Old is by the New explained." There will be a test on that at the end of uh, the sermon. Nobody gets out unless you can solve uh, the riddle. But that's the truth of it. The the fact of the matter is, as we look at the truths of the New Testament, very often we uh, can only begin to scratch the surface in terms of Uh, what they mean and the depth of their meaning and application to our lives as Christians, uh, unless we can see them in the light of how they're illustrated in the Old Testament. And so it's very, very important, uh, the Old Testament here. Uh, What all of the events of this chapter, these next two chapters, represent for us in terms of biblical typology, let me spend a moment on that also that we may learn from it. The promised land that God promised to them, that's why it's called the promised land, the land of Canaan does not represent heaven. Very often people think of Canaan, the promised land, and all of that. They think automatically that the imagery speaks of of heaven. That's what it means to us as Christians. But it doesn't uh, mean that. You even have hymns that are written that kind of reinforce that that uh, vein. But it can't represent heaven because when the children of Israel get into Canaan, they are going to fight scores of battles. Uh, there will be no battles in heaven that we're going to be involved in, uh, thankfully. And uh, so no wars or battles in heaven. In the conquering of uh, Canaan, it's interesting, as we move into the history a little bit later, they're going to fail. They're going to fail in, in uh, trying to uh, conquer the people of Ai. Uh, they're going to be deceived by the Gibeonites who come with, you know, uh, old bread and worn out shoes and all. There'll be no uh, defeat in heaven. There'll be no uh, being deceived by someone uh, in, in heaven. So none of that will happen there. For the Christian, the promised land represents the spiritual life. That is all ours that's been given to us because of our faith in Jesus Christ. It's when we read the New Testament and we read all of the promises that are given to us because of our faith in Christ. I think about Ephesians chapter 1 that talks about our spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, repeated over and over again. These are the promises that we have because of the faith that we've put in Him. That's our promised land. Every time we see a promise of God in the New Testament, and we read that promise, that promise is one of the cities that we need to conquer in, in uh uh, appropriating the fullness of, of, of the Christian life that is ours. So here you've got this picture of the land of Israel in your mind and, and picture it as all of that being promised to us a Christian life. If you were to conquer all of the promises uh, in the New Testament concerning the Christian, I mean, then you would possess everything that's been purchased for us in Christ. But the fact of the matter is, all through our Christian life, we're growing. We're taking over more land, over more land, over more land. None of us is going to end up going into heaven perfect. We're going to still be growing into those promises, making them ours, making them a part of, of our lives, and, and thus becoming very spiritually rich as a result of it. So we come to promises uh, in the Bible, and we look at them, and we think, Wow, that's a tremendous problem. I won- uh, promise. I wonder if God knows what kind of background I've come from. I wonder if he knows what kind of personality I have. I wonder if he knows about my fears. I wonder if he knows about my weaknesses. I think if he knew that, he knew that I couldn't possess that promise. That'll never be a part of my life. And, but there it is. It's a city that's it, it, sitting there for us to take and make our own and the wealth of it, to make it our, our own lives uh, uh, spiritually. And so this is how we move forward, taking the promises of God, saying this is true about my life, this is what I have in Christ, and I'm going to make this mine, and we just conquer one promise after another as we grow in our relationship with the Lord. We spy out the land, we're going to see in a moment, he sends spies into the land, How we spy out the land is by reading our Bible and by discovering uh, the promises of God. Who and what we are and what we have in Christ Jesus, all because of of Jesus. We say, all right, we've spied out the land. This is what God has for us. I mean, as you read the New Testament and you read the promises of God, it is a land flowing with milk and honey, isn't it? You look at what God describes there as ours. You want to smack your lips. It just looks fabulous spiritually and uh, and it really uh, it really is and so that's how we're to look at this section of scripture and how we're to in- interpret it uh, related to our own lives i think i'll give a, a couple of examples related to this when you go into Ephesians chapter 1, for instance, in in verse 3, as I've already kind of quoted, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You start to read through chapter 1 and you see all the things that God has given us because of Jesus. We read there that God loves us. Somebody sits there and says, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know that he loved me. I don't know about that. That's a city for you to conquer. And if you never believe what God's Word has to say about his love for you, then you'll never conquer that city. That's a blessing for you. To look and say, I'm going to believe what God's Word says about me and his love of me. And you take that and accept that. That city, that promise, that passage gets conquered. And now all of the great riches that are found in that promise become yours. He promises there in chapter 1 that we can live a holy Christ-like life. He says there also that we're God's children, that God takes his responsibility for us as his children very, very uh, seriously. He tells us there that we're redeemed. That's a promise that God has given to us. We've been purchased out of slavery Uh, to self and sin, and now we've been purchased out of that slavery and been set free by Jesus. And so we don't have to live as a slave to all of these former things that we were once a slave to. And I guarantee every single one of us in this room that knows Christ has to deal with taking that city, just like Ai or Jericho or any other city. We come to know the Lord, and God fills us with His Holy Spirit. We'll get into the passage in a moment. But He fills us with His His Holy Spirit, and then we read about the fact that a greater power is in us than the power that that had a a grip on us to do all of these sins that we were doing. And we say, oh no, I don't think God knows how strong of a grip that had on my life. And I'm going to need to either accept the fact that I've been redeemed, Accept that promise as truth, and then that city fall and all that wealth now of being redeemed, becoming a part of my Christian life, or I'll never conquer that city. That's just the way that it goes. That We have the forgiveness of, of sins. We don't have to beat ourselves up over our past anymore. We just need to accept that as a, a fact From God, that He's chosen us not only to be saved, but He's chosen uh, us to to be used by Him for eternal purposes. So our life has significance, our life has meaning. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us uh, to give us the power to possess these promises, to live this Christian life. And then we also have the seal of His Holy Spirit upon our lives, which is the guarantee that heaven will be our home after this life. And on and on and on, these promises go in. In the, the New Testament, I think about 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become brand new. That's a promise of God. That's a truth that God has given us. And having received Jesus as my Savior, something new has begun in, in my life. I'm no longer the person that I once was. Now, I can do what the children of Israel are going to do in just a minute. And they're going to say, oh no, that can't be true. There's no way. I mean, that's not, they're giants. That, 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 that thing in my life and what I used to be and how I used to be in bondage to this sin and this sin and this sin, I mean, that's always going to be a part of my life. I'm glad I'm on my way to heaven. But those walls will never come down. They will never come down. I will always be about that. And make an excuse for it to continue to stand. And, uh, and that's, what they, that's what they did. Instead of coming in and saying, nope, I believe what God's word has said about me here. The city falls as I accept that in my spirit and then move on uh, f- from that. Now for us, uh, the giants in the land that they're going to complain about here in just a few minutes is anyone or anything that would rise up and resist us in our attempt not only to know every promise that is ours, but to possess it. And it isn't a thing of where we look and say, oh, we're going to go and possess these promises, but there will be no resistance. There will be resistance. There's a spiritual warfare that goes on around us. The devil will resist it, absolutely will resist it. The world will resist it. They like the foothold that they have. Uh, in, in our, our lives. Others will rise up and resist it. Even sometimes family members say, I liked you the old way. You disgusted me, but at least I understood you. And, uh, and so these are the kind of enemies that will rise up. The strongholds that we will face are the sins and the bondages that had control over our lives for so long, and then we realize it'll take a miracle of God uh, for us to defeat them, and then what does God do? He gives us that miracle, and, and we conquer that area in our life by the, the Spirit of God and and move forward. So during the journey of possessing the fullness of the life that is ours, uh, in Christ, whatever the obstacles, we are to remember that our God, who has given us these promises, is greater than them all. He's greater than all of them. You look at the promises of, in God's new, uh, in, in the New Testament. You look and say, "No way." <laughs> That's a nice verse. It ought to be in the Bible. It will just never be the truth about me. That is to underestimate the power of God Almighty, who has come inside of our lives. To give us the ability to possess everything he describes in the New Testament. And that's how God wants us to view the Christian life, and that's the imagery that he uses in, in this passage. Now let's head into it uh, formally. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men out of the land of Canaan, uh, out to, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. So, one leader from each of the twelve tribes, head out there, spy out the whole land. Now, let me fill in a, a couple of historical blanks uh, here before we move any further. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, we're given the additional insight that this idea to send the spies uh, into the land of Canaan, to spy out the land prior to going into it as in mass, that wasn't the idea of God. That was the idea of, of the people. Uh, that the Lord permitted it is, is absolutely clear, because there's no condemnation on his part, or even condemnation on the part of Moses related to that. Now, it does raise a question, and I think it's an important one, and we'll watch it unfold over the next week. Or, or so it raises the question as to why the Lord would allow the ten spies to go into the land uh, if He knew it would have the kind of result that it would have, or the twelve spies go in and the ten spies come back with with the bad report. Why would he allow that to happen? Why wouldn't he just say, No, the plan A is this, is that the whole group goes in. I've given you my promises that you're going to go in and you're going to take that land. There's no need for you to send spies in to confirm what I've told you. It's an affront to me. It's to treat me as if I'm exaggerating or I'm lying and I'm going to hold to this. Instead, he, he allows them to send the spies in. And I'm inclined to believe that the Lord granted their request in order to expose them, to expose the unbelief and to expose the rebellion that he knew was in the heart of, of the adult population of, of this group of, of people. He knew that this generation lacked the faith in God. They lacked the godly character that would be necessary In order to conquer the land, and so he allowed them to expose themselves and disqualify themselves before it was ever attempted. He said, Sure, go ahead and do it. They wanted to walk by sight and not by faith. That's what they wanted. But the Bible says to inhabit the praise or inhabit the promises of the New Testament, we have to walk by faith, not by sight. And so, God, here, here's a group of people. They demand more evidence from God uh, that they're going to have the victory than God's Word and His promises. And, uh, and so, they, uh, as they demand that, I, we want more than Your Word. We want to see something with our eyes. We want something tangible that we can uh, be a witness to. And uh, because of this tendency on their part here, they're not going to possess it at all. You carry it over into the New Testament, the life of the Christian. I have never known a single Christian to grow into any semblance of maturity who will not walk by faith and the promises of God, who will not come to a place and say, you are God, you are the smart one, you stand behind your word, and if you say that's the truth about me, then that's the truth about me. And not saying. I believe that if you then let me see such and such with my eyes or demand some kind of visual, physical proof uh, that his word is, is true. That kind of person, you will leave one day and come back and visit them 40 years later and they will still be the immature person that is out in the wilderness and they still will have not even begun to enjoy the Christian life as as Christ has purchased it uh, for them. So they want to walk by sight. They don't want to walk by faith. They say, I want to see it first. But what God knew is that if they saw it first, most of them would be terrified. Do you know that sometimes God calls us to a step of faith and just about the worst thing that he could do to us is allow us to see what we're going to encounter in obeying Him to conquer that. Uh, Sometimes ignorance is bliss, and God knows it to be true. Sometimes He'll call us to take a step of faith, and if He had told us ahead of time what we were going to run into, we'd have never done it. it, Sometimes He he catches us, uh, you know, when we, we don't know any better, and He calls us to do something before we've got the good sense to say no. I think about several things and, uh, related to even this church. If we felt back in 1985 we were supposed to leave uh, Napa, our hometown, and c- come over here and, and start a church and all. And uh, wow, I look back and say, if I had known what, we, what we're going to go through, I'd still be splicing wires. I'd, I'm telling you. He just calls you and you do it. And then if you knew the whole picture of all the enemies you were going to face, all the hardship you were going to face, all the walled cities you were going to face, instead of just facing them one at a time, I don't think anybody's ready for that. So God does that kind of thing. I'll never forget, because it cost me about ten years of my life, I'm sure. Second thing, we're building this church. God was building it out here. Put everything together, you know, and got the deal and this and and god 's supplying and, and the walls are going up all over on everything, and it 's moving forward, and we had reached a verbal agreement for access to the property with the the neighboring uh, owner of the land to the west and uh, and oh yeah, absolutely, and everything but there, but every time we came to actually sign the thing, he there would be some kind of a problem he would freeze up on it a little bit and uh, and it wouldn't get signed and then then had to go back and do this and then six weeks here and three months here and here and here and here pretty soon we got a whole church that's being built here with no road to it now how stupid does a pastor look <laughs> on that that'd be the front that'd be front page for the minister to be Here's the man who built a church with no road to it. Because we couldn't get in on Tellendale because it's, a, it's an expressway. Couldn't, couldn't access it. And I'm telling you that as God was putting everything together, we, as my, best as we could hear him, we're supposed to do this, supposed to take this step and all. And uh, wow, he kept us dangling over something. I, I don't know what, but dangling for a long time before that finally got got signed and got taken care of. And it was just his way of saying, whatever happens there with all that, I just want you to know that uh, apart from me, apart from my grace, you would be known as the pastor who built the church no one could get to. And, uh, okay, we've got you. We'll, we'll keep the hands off the glory then, won't we, Lord? But, but sometimes that's how he does it. He, 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 he tells us to take a step, and it's best we don't know everything, because we'll see all the things that we're going to need to conquer over 30 years. And he knows we just need to see those things one day at a time. And so I don't think it was a, it was a very good, uh, good move, but God honored it. I think he, he knew with this generation that if he sent them in with all their whining and complaining and lack of spirituality, they wouldn't have been able to take the land uh, anyway. And so he's going to allow them to disqualify themselves. So, uh, Moses sent... Uh, them, verse three, from the wilderness of Paran, according to the commandment of the Lord, all of them, uh, men who were heads of the children of Israel. So he sends the twelve spies in. They come in from the south. Now remember, later on, when Joshua brings them into the land of Israel, they will come in uh, up towards, uh, up by Jericho, above the Dead Sea. So they'll come from modern-day Jordan. Right now, they're coming out of the Negev. They're coming out of the Sinai Peninsula the desert down and the south in order to spy out the land. Now these are the names of the tribe of Reuben, uh, Shemua, uh, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, uh, make note of his name, from the tribe of Issachar, is Igal, uh, from the tribe of uh, uh, Ephraim, uh, Hosea, from the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, from the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, from the tribe of Joseph, uh, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, uh, Gadi, from the tribe of Dan, uh, Amiel, Uh, from the tribe of Asher, Sethur, from the tribe of Naphtali, uh, Nabi, from the tribe of Gad, Geuel. Uh, these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea, as he's referring to the name up in verse 8, called the name, uh, uh, Moses called Hosea the son of Nun Joshua. So Joshua is his right hand man. He changes his name from Hosea, which means salvation to Joshua, which is the same uh, name in a different language for Jesus. Jesus' name means Jehovah is salvation. And uh, so that's why when Jesus came into the world, he wasn't known as uh, Alex or Jonathan or something like that. Uh, his name is Jesus because it's a contraction of a phrase that means Jehovah is salvation. So he renames Joshua at this point probably in recognition of uh, the, uh, Joshua's spirituality, but we also know that Joshua is going to lead them into the Promised Land, and and uh, as a type and a picture of Jesus. So the renaming is fabulous. Now this listing of the twelve that are going into the Promised Land, uh, the the names of of the spies here. They are not. There's been several lists of prominent men from each of the twelve tribes of Israel that have been used for one reason or another. None of these these are an altogether different lists of men, though they are prominent. Uh, prominent men probably the other group that was listed as being kind of the heads of their tribes and all were probably quite elderly and uh, these guys are going to run over hill and dale and vale and mountains and valleys and across rivers and deserts and all kinds of things if they had sent a, a you know a bunch of 60 or 70 year olds in there they'd come back and say we've got about six miles up into there and So far, so good, you know, on things. So he sends a younger group of people that can go all the way from the north to the south. And so then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south, enter from the south and go up to the mountains. And here is what they were to look at. See what the land is like. Whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many. Whether the land they dwell in is good or bad. Is it really a land flowing with milk and honey? Whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds. Whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are forests or uh, there or not, be of good courage. It's almost as if he anticipates that this group of people are not deeply spiritual. So he's kind of saying, now be of good courage, and don't forget to view all of this with you know, spiritual eyes, eyes of faith, and bring back some fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first uh, ripe grapes. And so this is about uh, July uh, at that time. Remember, they've been out in the wilderness for about a year and a half, they haven't had a nectarine, they haven't had an apricot, they haven't had a grape, they haven't had any fresh fruit at all. So, jo- so Moses just says, "Hey, when you go in there, bring back a little fruit." So, all right, very good. No harm in asking, right? So uh, that's what he did, and so they went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob. Rehob is. All The way to the north up near uh, Lebanon, and they went through the south and came to he, uh, Hebron. Uh, Ahiman, uh, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Uh, now, Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt, and then they came to the valley of Eshkol, uh, there in the center of the land, a very productive area. And they cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes, and the cluster of grapes was so great. They carried it between two of them on a pole. My favorite fruit, grapes. I can't imagine seeing something like this at the store. It took two men to carry a cluster of grapes. You go to Israel today in the Israeli uh, tourism department, that's the symbol of uh, of of the department of tourism for israel is it shows two spies i like to think it's joshua and caleb and uh Certainly, they wouldn't use one of the other ten as an example, but um, so carrying this gigantic, you know, stake between them and this big cluster of grapes, and basically, it's an invitation to the whole world to come to Israel and see it. Really, is a land flowing with with milk and honey, and so they bring back the grapes uh, just like Joshua uh, Moses had requested. They also brought some of the pomegranate and figs, and so here comes the fresh fruit. And the place uh, was called the place was called the the valley of Eshkol, which is, means cluster, because of the cluster of grapes which the men of Israel cut down there. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 uh, days. And so they return and, uh, uh, after that 40-day period. Now, it's interesting that God would have them spy out the land for a period of, of 40 days. Because in the Bible, 40 is uh, oftentimes associated with testing. Uh, in Genesis, at the time of Noah, it rained 40 days and it rained 40 nights, uh, didn't it? And the world failed the test, didn't it? Uh, they failed to repent of their sin, failed to enter into the ark, they failed the test. In Exodus, Moses spent 40 days on top of the Mount, uh, Mount Sinai receiving the law from the Lord and below the people were worshipping a golden calf. They failed the test. Uh, didn't they? Remember Goliath uh, taunted Saul's army for 40 days, morning and evening. And David went out and he defeated Goliath and brought a, a successful end to that test. Following Jesus's water baptism at the Jordan River, Jesus was tempted by the devil out in the wilderness uh, for 40 days and 40 nights. He passed that test. And there's many other examples like this uh, in, in the Bible. And, and the reason that I think it's significant is, it, and again, it ties to the fact that all of this is a test of this, this particular generation. We're going to b- about to find out uh, that, uh, uh, find out if the 12 spies have passed their test, this test of their faith uh, in the Lord, and 10 are going to fail it, and uh, two are going to pass it. So they come back. There in verse 26, uh, they departed and they came back to Moses and Aaron, all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And their great failure occurs at a place called Kadesh Barnea. So they brought back word to them and all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. I mean, people must have said, you know, who gets the grapes? (laughs) It's just fabulous. Only one per. Okay, it's all right. They're big enough. And and so uh, they they come back, show him the fruit, and then they told him and said. We went to the land where you sent us. It truly, and mark that word truly in your mind, it truly flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit. So here's the positive side of their report that they bring back to uh, Moses. This is everything God said it would be. Now, milk and honey in those days, we think about milk and honey and we say, that's okay. I mean, I'd rather have a, a milkshake and a... Kit-Kat bar, but in those days, milk and honey, those were luxuries. Those were great luxuries. In other words, they're coming back and saying, this land is not going to be a land where we have to go in and eke out a living. This is a land that has the ability to supply us luxuriously as as a people. This looks like a recession-proof uh, kind of, uh, of land here. And so it was just as God described it. They come back and they... They give that, that report. And so it would have been good if, if everything in their history just stopped right there in verse 27 and there wasn't that word nevertheless in verse 28. But nevertheless, there is the nevertheless. And so it becomes kind of of a mess. They should have said, "God's word is true. He's given us proof of it in our eyes. Let's go and possess uh, what He's given to us." But they continue their report, and they said, "Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. I mean, these are tough people in there, and the cities they're fortified. And and the the cities of the Canaanites, historically, we know some of their walled cities were between fifty and ninety feet high." So these people are coming out of Egypt. They've ne- Egypt didn't have walls like this. There was no need for it. Who was going to attack Egypt? So they come and they see these walls. They've never seen anything like it before. And so it really troubled their faith. What they didn't realize is God had ways of taking walls down. But uh, all they're going to see is not how big God is, but, but how big uh, these fortifications are. The cities, they're fortified, and they are very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And they'll talk about them a little bit later. The descendants of Anak were a very large, giant kind of of people. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the banks of the Jordan. I'm telling you, it looks bad in there. There's a lot of people in there. It's not about going in there and just conquering a few people. They're well entrenched. There's a lot of nations in there, and they've been there a long time. This is going to be a really hard thing to do. That's what they're thinking. Now, here's the deal. God never told them they're going to go into an empty land. He told them all the way back at the time of Abraham, he told Moses that when you go in and take the land, there are going to be Canaanites, there's going to be Hittites, there are going to be Ammonites, there's going to be Jebusites, there are going to be Amorites, there are going to be all kinds of people. You're going to, there is going to be a conquest of the land. So it shouldn't have taken them by, by surprise. But they look at it and say, wow, we're going to have to fight for every inch of, of this land. I mean, this is going to be really, really hard. And so they... Focus on all of the difficulties that would be uh, involved in, in the conquering of, of the land. Now, see, the problem is, is if it was just like all barren land and all there was was like Bambi in there and Thumper and uh, things like... I mean, how much faith would that take to go in and conquer, uh, conquer that uh, land? I mean, without giants, or without strongholds, there's no need for faith. And, and for the person who likes to live by faith... Without those kind of strongholds or difficulties, there's no way to honor God with our faith. It's one of the best feelings in the world, is when God calls us to do something, and there are all kinds of obstacles in the physical realm, and we look at it and say, wow, this is way beyond my resources. Only God could do this. But God, you're telling me to do this, and you take the step, and then God does what He alone can do. And the, what happens in a person's relationship with God, in terms of their history with God, is priceless. And God knows it. Nobody can take that away from you the rest of your life. I did this with God. God used me this way. And so, but it, re, it requires obstacles in order to walk by faith and to live by faith. But not everyone wants to live by faith. These ten do not want to live by faith. Joshua and Caleb, they want to live by faith. Faith excites them. The problem with the whole issue of faith is that God, as the old saying goes, must always push us beyond our own resources to discover His. Now here's how I like it. I like to think I'm living by faith when I'm living by sight. When God calls me to do something that's within the, you know, the confines of my uh, profit and loss statement or within my level of energy or within my, you know, what I think I can do or tackle or those kinds of things and then to consider that I'm walking by faith. Faith is when God calls us to do something and you look at it and say, uh, the only one that can pull this off is you, but if you're willing to do this and I, I know it would be disobedience not to do it, I'm willing to tackle it. And it's a very, very rich thing that happens between God and his people when, when, uh, when a person is obedient uh, to, to do that. These ten spies that, that come back with this evil report, as it's going to be called, this bad report, they're a type of, of the Christian who spies out all of the blessings that God has for them that are detailed in his word. But instead of responding to those promises with a faith, God is going to do this, God, you promise this, God, you're going to accomplish this in my life, I'm going to claim that promise uh, for my life, they respond with a nevertheless. Well, yeah, I'm glad that's in the Bible, and I think that it works for most people and all, but that's not going to work for me. I mean, the walls are so high, and there's so many people involved, and there's all of this and, and all. And again, that person makes no progress at all in in a relationship uh, with God a deep kind of relationship with the Lord then we notice in verse 30 that Caleb quieted the people before Moses now why would he need to quiet them because the report of the ten has sent a panic through three million people they are they are in in an uproar over the report that's been given to them by the ten now isn't it fascinating there's something perverse about the flesh There's that, that in most people it wants to believe the worst about a situation. Anybody else afflicted with that at all? I look at a situation and the first thing I zone in is everything that could go wrong. Now, I don't stay there. But I look at it and say, this is everything that could go wrong in the situation and now what needs to happen to get here? But here they are. I mean, they've heard the good report. They've heard the evil report. And all they can hear is the evil report. You know, though everything's going to collapse. My life is over. This is it. It's a ruin. What in the world is God doing? I can't. And this is what's going on. So Caleb quiets the people before Moses. And here's what he said to them. Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. Well, all right. Well, all right. I mean, that's just great faith. What are we killing time here, sniveling for? Let's put our boots on and get in there. Sometimes you just need a good cowboy to take over and <laughs> on in there. So we're well able to. Do this to overcome it. Now he's going to talk about it uh, later in chapter 14, verse, uh, verse 8. He says, if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us in. These, these other people are looking at the whole circumstance. They're not processing God in the equation at all. They're just looking at this thing. This is what we're going to do. And they're weighing it in the light of their resources. And Caleb comes in and he looks at the whole thing and says, Yeah, you're all sniveling and whining and it's a a mess. But he's processing it in the light of the resources of God, the power of God. And not a God that they didn't have a history with, but a God who had only recently delivered them out of Egypt. They'd already seen the power of God. So let's go. Let's go take it. God will be with us. But the men who had gone up with him, they cut him off. And they said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And they they just jump in with the the next bad report that they they give. And in essence, they're defending their bad report. And what that tells me is they had settled this before they ever came out of that, spying out the promised land to give the report. They had settled it as an issue. They had no intention of of, uh, bringing a report that would allow the children of Israel to go into that promised land. This is their determined position. They begin with a favorable report so they don't arouse any kind of suspicion related to things. But then they dig in and it's one bad report uh, after uh, another, doing everything that they can to turn the people away. And so they they give the same reason. We can't go in. They're stronger than us. And then they do something that's fascinating here in verse 32, as if they can't do worse. They gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, "The land through which we have gone is, uh, uh, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its uh, inhabitants." You go in there, you're just going to get killed. You get killed in there. These people are a fighting people. And you get in there and you get caught between those walled cities, and they're just, I mean, it's just fighting and warfare in there. And, and you go in, you're just going to get caught in a mess and, and you're going to get devoured. And then they say, and all, encircle that word all in your mind, all the people whom we saw in it were men of great stature. Not true. Not true. The children, sons of Anak, were giants, but not all of the people they ran into. So they start to use. Is there cases in danger of crumbling? In order to bolster it, they use exaggeration in order to kind of uh, win uh, the day here. And so they're going to exaggerate the dangers that are in, involved in, in all of it uh, to, uh, and the difficulty of, of the things that, 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 um, so that people will you know, stay in a frenzy. It's kind of a funny thing, this, this whole exaggeration thing. It's interesting to watch how it plays out in life uh, sometimes. That great tendency, and it's a dangerous tendency, I think, to exaggerate the difficulty of things that God is calling us to do but our flesh doesn't uh, want to do and to exaggerate the difficulty in order to try and justify our rebellion or disobedience to what it is that God is calling us to do. And I think uh, there's a certain kind of person that has to be uh, aware of it, where they don't look at the possibilities of what, what God is calling us to do, and, uh, but only see the problem. Sometimes you'll have a person who has a tendency towards exaggeration, and uh, they'll come to a person who is in a position of authority and to make decisions and all, and there's needing to make a decision in some area uh, of life, and they'll say something like, you know, I've had a lot of people say that they don't really know about that, or whether this, and they've got a lot of people really confused about that decision and, and that kind of thing. And, and then you'll say, really, a lot of people? A lot of people, wow. A lot of people are, well, how many is a lot of people? Is it like a hundred people? Well, it's not quite a hundred. Is it ninety people? Well, it might not be ninety, but it's a lot of them. Well, is it forty people? No, but I'm telling you, it's a lot of, you get them all the way down to two. (laughs) Say it was two people. Two people over a period of three weeks that said that they really didn't want to do this. They come with this whole exaggeration because they don't want it to go in a particular direction. and So they use that to kind of manipulate a situation in in a particular uh, direction. And so that's exactly what it is that they're doing. So they completely discount the strength and the promises uh, of the Lord here. They say, verse 33, "There there we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, Come from the giants and we are like grasshoppers in our own sight and we and so we were in their sight. I mean when when we looked at ourselves next to them, we just felt like a little grasshopper. I can never th- not think of that dumb show every time I hit this passage. Ooh. <laughs> Snatch pebble. And then not only did I feel like I was a grasshopper in their sight, when they looked at us, they looked at us like we were little grasshoppers. They're just going to squish us like bugs if we we go in in there. Now, this is very, very serious uh, because this was a call by leaders among God's people to disobey God's commandments and His calling and purpose for their life simply because it was going to involve hardship, and it was going to involve difficulty. And I'll tell you, this isn't anything new, even in the body of Christ. You think about how many Christians are talked out of obeying God's Word in that marriage, in that family situation, in that work situation, in that business situation, that whatever kind of, of situation. And I'll tell you, how it's, it's amazing how often once it begins to cost me something real in order to stay faithful to God's Word, how many... Not only people in the world, but how many people call themselves Christians, come along. They hate to see us enduring any kind of hardship. And they tell us, even if you have to disobey God's Word, go ahead and do it. He'll forgive you, and you can get back on track afterwards. And there's just a great tendency for people, even parents, uh, family members, friends... Christians and all, as soon as they see us beginning to suffer or in, encounter great difficulty or to obey God's, God's Word, they'll say, listen, any you hit hardship, it's okay to disobey Him. And we must never, ever do that. And that's what they're doing as leaders. So you obey God when it's easy, and you're free to disobey Him when, when it's, uh, when it's uh, difficult. And uh, that's the kind of vibe that they're giving to the people there let's let's go a few verses into fourteen so as a result of this report this evil report so all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried and the people wept that night so the entire congregation chooses to believe the the, you know uh, the Uh, bad report of of these faithless leaders and they they decide we're gonna we're not gonna you know follow God in in what he's he's calling us uh, to do here now this is very interesting because they choose to follow these leaders who are leading them in a direct violation of God's Word never ever 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 follow anyone that leads you into deliberate disobedience to the Word of God. I don't care if they're one of the twelve spies. I don't care if they're the grand poobah on the Flintstones. I don't care what their position might be in the body of Christ. Never follow anyone into disobedience. There is something harder than obedience to God's Word, and that is disobedience to His Word, which is what they're going to find out. No majority. They have a clear majority now. It's like every one of the congregation of Israel minus probably Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb. Talk about a very small minority. But no majority is right if they're violating God's Word One plus God, none plus God is a majority. So they just begin to weep and weep. It would really be nice if verse 1, they were weeping over the lack of faith of the ten spies. I can't believe it. They came out of Egypt with us. I never knew we had such weakness among our leaders that they would even try to put the smallest shred of doubt in our hearts about the promises of God. I'm so ashamed (laughs) Let's cry tonight. (laughs) You can get a lot out of these verses when you're (laughs) stupid idiot. (laughs) But so, but that's not. They are they're here crying at the prospect of having to enter into the promised land. I am stunning. They're weeping. All the kids come together, kids. Let's cry together. And all the children of Israel complained. It, so the crying turns now, they're going to direct it against individuals. They complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt. Wow. Oh. Now put yourself in that place. After all, God did? That's the thanks? Or if only we had died in this wilderness. I wish we had died in the wilderness instead of going into this promised land. And why? And now they begin to complaint against the Lord. Verse 3. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword like that's what he had promised them? that our wives and our children should become victims, why would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? And so now they start to talk about returning to Egypt. Egypt is in shambles because of God's deliverance of them with, by, the ten, by way of the ten uh, plagues. There's no way they can return to Egypt, but they start to talk about all, all of these, these things. I mean, you think about uh, the, the, the grip of fear. The, the tendency of the flesh to believe the worst. The worst news. And and so it would be better for us to return to Egypt. So they said, they're not going to just leave it with words. So they said to one another, let's select a leader and return to Egypt. This is incredible. God has great plans attached to these people. They're going to take a leader. Enough of God. Enough of Moses. Enough of Aaron. We're going back to Egypt. Let's see who will lead us. Notice the reaction of Moses and Aaron. They fell on their faces. They knew that what they were seeing and what they were hearing deserved the wrath of God, the judgment of God. They knew that this can't go well. Ever been in a situation where someone does something that is just like so bad and and blasphemous and wrong that you just look and you just say, I'm not here, I'm not here, I'm not here. I didn't hear that, I'm not seeing that, I'm not here because something really bad is going to happen based upon what these people have just done. I and mean, it's a real feeling. And that's what they felt. They looked at this and they said this. And so they fall down on their faces. They're just getting ready for judgment uh, to come. And they're representing physically with their lives. It was humbling themselves before God. So they're in essence saying, We are not what these people are about. We are humble before You. We're with You, Lord. They fell down on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. They sided with God. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of this fellow, who were among those who had spied out the land, when they heard what the people were doing, they tore their clothes. That was an ancient way of expressing mourning where uh, if somebody died or very bad news came, you would just tear your clothes and, and, and just op- tear the seam open because it was an outward representation of the tear and the pain that had just happened in your heart. So when they hear this news, I mean this really cuts them all the way to their heart and they try again they spoke to the congregation of the children of Israel saying the land we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land if the Lord delights in us don't forget about God he's with us he delights in us then he will bring us into the land forget about grasshoppers and Anak and and Amorites and all think about God and how big he is He'll bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Says so The land is good, only don't rebel against the Lord. It warns them against rebellion. Nor fear the people of the land. It warns them against uh, fear, for they are our bread. We're going to eat them up. Their protection has departed uh, from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation, this was their response, said... Stone them with stones. Let's kill them right now. Okay. It's not just a verse in the Bible. This is happening in human history. The two men who are trying to be faithful to God, who understand God and the seriousness of obeying Him, the congregation is looking now and saying, Let's execute these people. Let's silence this voice of optimism and, and clear thinking and biblical thinking in, in our midst. And they are legitimately uh, considering now to kill these two people with their own hands. And at that point, God says, I've had enough. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before the children of Israel, and he comes on the scene and he's going to bring it to his conclusion. And we'll stop there tonight and pick it up in verse 11 uh, next uh, uh, week.